Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. The nature of medicine tends to showcase the science and technology of treatment. The truth is that healthcare at its core is a relationship among the people involved, caregiver, patient, family. Humanity and medicine, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Thank you for inviting us into your home as we continue to celebrate our 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Hello, I'm Dr. Joy Falkenberg of Monument Health in Custer, South Dakota. How patients and caregivers relate to one another is as important as the implementation of any medical procedure. After all, we are all people and not machines. Joining us tonight here in Rapid City Public Broadcasting Black Hills Studio in Rapid City, is Dr. Wyatt O'Day, independent practitioner in Rapid City, and Dr. Terry Graber of Monument Health in Hill City. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We're gonna start with Dr. O'Day. Um, these guys are both my friends, and we've been friends for a long time, but I first met Dr. Wyatt O'Day, who's a medical doctor, when I was in uh, USD Medical School. And uh, I specifically remember my experience, but he probably remembers it differently. My mom died like the first week of medical school, and there were three people who I'd never met before, and uh, they showed up when I returned to medical school after I buried her on a Friday and came back on Monday, and Wyatt was one of those. Mm. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like, how did you physically end up in Rapid City? We're gonna kind of talk about the emotional experience, but how physically, what's your journey been? Uh, since graduating? Yeah, from medical USD school? Medical School, yeah. So I went uh, to, uh, emergency medicine residency in Michigan, yep. and then decided to come back to South Dakota and came to Rapid. And I worked uh, with the ER group at, well, then regional, now it's Monument, for five years. And then I quit, moved to Arizona, and moved, uh, did locums for Avera for a couple of years. And then uh, once they filled their staff roster, I moved to Australia and worked for the National Health System for three years. And while I was there was when I decided I wanted to change my pathway in medicine. And we'll probably get to the other reasons for that at some point. And quit and gave myself two years to figure out what I wanted to do. And lived the first year between Bali and Thailand. And then uh, the second year of Central America. And then I started coming back to Rapid City during the summers. Because I said I was never going to live here during the winter. And <laughs> you know what happens when you say never. Right. I know. And eventually opened up my uh, acupuncture practice. And now I'm here full time. Yeah. And we're super excited you're here. And uh, our lives have been uh, in and out ever since medical school. Yeah. And so I'm excited to talk about your other journey in your life. Uh, Dr. Graber, tell me a little bit about your uh, coming here because you're not a South Dakota native. No, the uh, first time I came to South Dakota was for summer school when I was in college. Uh, my college, Wheaton, has a summer school program on Rapid Creek. And so okay. I came out here in the summer of 81. 
and then later when I was looking for work, uh, being near the Black Hills seemed like a good thing. So I came out to Pine Ridge in 1990 wow. and worked there for a year at the IHS hospital. And then uh, a good guy named John Herbst recruited me up to Custer. He was working for Rapid City Regional at the time and trying to get doctors to stay in the hills because mm -hmm. it was kind of uh, underserved. He was a great, great person. Good he guy. was also involved in my life. Ah. So Don Gifford was the administrator at the time, hired me, gave me my first real job, mm -hmm. and uh, was, uh, was like a bit of a mentor. Uh, he, uh, he was just a real uh, kind, compassionate, uh, encouraging, problem-solving sort of guy. And so uh, I started working there when, when the old hospital was there. Yep. And uh, then later kind of transitioned to just an office-based practice in Hill City now these last few years. Which is great. Um, Dr. Graber and I know each other uh, because I was his medical student mm -hmm. and his resident and was he was probably the reason I ended up in Custer. Um, I thought it was just so incredible that you could do pretty much anything, seemed like you could handle almost anything, <laughs> worked in the ER and the clinic, and um, I really loved your connectedness with your patients, you know? Well, I think we just really enjoyed the variety of work mm -hmm. and seeing people at different stages of their life mm -hmm. uh, with different things going on. And I think that, that made a real rich, full experience. Yeah. You still go to the nursing home? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, you care for people. I know you don't have a large pediatric practice, but you can care for the whole yeah, breadth of it. Babies, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I see pediatric and OB along with, we still do home visits. And when people need us, we'll show up at their house. Mm -hmm. During COVID, we had uh, one physician, Dr. Saini, who actually was our COVID doctor going into their homes and making oh. sure that they were OK. Nice. So, you know, uh, recently it seems that medicine maybe is struggling a little bit with trying to hold on to humanism in medicine. And I myself have noticed some obstructions with that. Um, it's been really difficult when we transitioned for me for, to an EMR, um, an electronic medical record. And just the contact between patients, like being able to be near them if you have a desk from afar, or look at them if, um, if you're trying to work with the EMR. Um, I'm going to go to Dr. Graber first and just ask you, what, what do you see some of the obstructions? I know that the EMR has been a little difficult for you. Right. Well, structurally, it seems like things are, are set up to accomplish uh, a lot of different goals. So when you're in the office with somebody, you're, there's always somebody else in the room, really, mm -hmm. right? There's always an insurance company or uh, uh, the administrator or... Uh, something else is, yep. is there interfering with your with your conversation and in some ways the the computer and the need to be documenting while you're talking to somebody is, is just another person in the room with you uh, taking up time and demanding attention that you could be paying to the patient yeah I have um, uh, Monument Health was was uh, very very helpful in creating a structure uh, my patients know that that my nurses were coming into the room with me and doing a lot of the documentation and then when we lost one of my nurses and staffing issues we haven't been able to do it exactly the same way but they still do a lot of my um, uh, work to clean through the chart to prep the things that are very obvious you know that we do in and out all mm -hmm. the time so it still gives me the ability to like slide over the patient. I like to sit right next to my patients. A lot of times I have my hand on their knee or I'm talking with them. You know, I give them hugs and that seems like it's really, it feels very important to me to do that. I know that's not all physicians and that's, that's what makes the world great is not everybody's the same. Well, part of the challenge is you, you want to have certain things in your note mm -hmm. so that you can have them the way that you can handle them. 
And uh, if that fits in a checkbox, then it's pretty easy to do with an electronic form. If yep. it's something that has to be written out in just a certain way, then it's harder. And so then that consumes more time to do that. Yeah. Yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, Wyatt. Um, what, what was your transition from kind of what, what I would call a little bit more traditional medicine to the acupuncture realm? And I know that you had a, um, an actual event occur that might have been part of that trajectory, if you want to share that with us. Uh, well, I guess what probably instigated my whole transformation would be the original, the car accident that I had uh, while I was working here. And I ended up pinned underneath my car and collapsed lung and spleen yeah. and you know, ICU stay. And right. uh, after something like that happens, the, you want everything to go back to normal because normal feels good. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after that happened, I was back to work in I think less than eight weeks, even though I'd had a flail chest and broke ribs in multiple places and had you know, yeah. a rib removed because it was pressing on the pericardium. And, those sorts of things. So you want everything to get back to normal, but then you kind of realize that things will never get back to normal. Right. And all of those frustrations of dealing with corporate medicine, um, graduating from residency and realizing that what I expected and what we were going to get was going to be completely different, that sort of inst started instigating the change. Mm -hmm. You know, I think at one time of my life I said, oh, I'd never leave my job in Rapid City, mm -hmm. you know, and that wasn't true because I had to find a path that was more in line and congruent with what I wanted to do with my life. And I know that when you and I talked and I, and I was worried about you obviously when you were so sick and when you came through that experience, it seemed like you were a changed person because you had the recognition of what other people were experiencing. Am I remembering that right? Yes like and no, it, kind of, it, it did two different things. One, I could understand people's uh, pain. I could understand their frustration with being in the hospital and being a patient and um, things not going the way that you would expect them to go. And in other senses, that actually made me more the other way. So um, people that would maybe, that I, that I perceived or judged as abusing the system or using the emergency department when we really need it for emergencies uh, that became actually more frustrating in some mm -hmm. way. Sure. Uh, it was harder to actually put myself into those people's shoes. shoes. It was easy for me to put, um, my sh put myself into someone's shoes who was having an accident or a very large life-altering event at that time. Mm -hmm. But then it also made me um, more irritated, actually, with uh, the other patients. And I think that's kind of where uh, the split be started to show up in the work, where I was like, uh, maybe I need to find a different uh, path. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that would, would be in, uh, an event that would create something new, something, you know, one door closes or one door seems to close and another one may open. Yeah. I know that, uh, Dr. Graber, you work in Health City, but you've been all over the world, really. Did that change any of your perceptions? Well, so I came to work at Pine Ridge because... Uh, uh, I guess a big motivating factor for me in going into medicine is a concept of service. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I'm not sure what motivates everybody. I mean, there are technical aspects that are interesting and fun to do. Uh, I guess I, I saw those technical aspects as a way to, to have a, an opening to be involved with people. 
uh, as opposed to an end in themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, so service was important. My folks had been missionaries overseas. Um, it was it was just a part of growing up. So looking for underserved communities, yeah, uh, it was a, it was an important uh, emphasis. And 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 I guess it's the, the way I would tie that in with practice is just that it's been very difficult, I guess, not to see the the patient's clinical need as the driver for whatever takes place. Um, now. Maybe that seems kind of obvious, but on the other hand, there are a lot of things that drive um, some of our behaviors. You know, um, the uh, the expectation of a certain you know set of standardized tests, for right. example, uh, could could start to drive behaviors, and you could find yourself doing things that are the servant of some sort of standardized protocol and right. not really driven by the patient's needs or desires. I think that's actually one of my concerns in where medicine may be headed. You know, what is considered uh, quality care mm -hmm. is very checkbox. You know, did you order this test? Did you um, did you did you mark this box? You know, is it uh, on the EMR that you have done your job? When in reality, the patient can leave the room feeling very empty mm -hmm. uh, and and not listened to. I know my own uh, story was like after I lost mom, even before mom had died. Um, I just was very disappointed actually in medicine. I felt like here's this beautiful woman with a beautiful family um, that nobody really cared to know on a deep level. They, they were doing things to her and for her, and I know they probably were well-intentioned, but I was surprised that they didn't want to know the deeper meaning of like where we came from. Um, we traveled a very long distance for medical care. And I just really wanted people who came into my office not to feel the same way that we felt uh, with, mm -hmm. with mom's story. And I know, that, I know that that's one of the things that you really work at too, and it's one of the reasons we share a lot of patients is because uh, you want to see the whole person right. and take care of the whole person. We have just a little moment left. Can you think of, we're gonna do a roll in, but can you think of, a, um, of an example that, that uh, has really solidified that you're happy doing what you're doing right now? Oh, or is it like example? so many? I think it's so many. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that. I love my job yeah. and I love to see my patients. Mm -hmm. And I can't, and that's pretty much all the time now. Mm -hmm. Or before I would say that that probably wasn't. Because it seemed time. like you weren't actually getting at any root cause. It was like, yeah, here's, here's this, yeah. Then I was saving lives, but I wouldn't go home feeling fulfilled at the end of the mm, day. Interesting. But now with a, with a patient, I can feel fulfilled all the time. It's such a strange thing. And it's not that I'm saving their life, it's that I'm actually getting to help guide them maybe through a hard time or a pain right. or something like that. And there's definitely more consistency and con you know, congruent to care yeah. that I didn't get working in the emergency department. It seems that something both of you are saying is like the difference between kind of autonomy and paternity in a lot of ways. You know, when we go into medicine, uh, there's this concept of like, are we in charge of your health care? Or are you in charge of your health care and we are here to listen and guide? And actually the question is, is if there's a third party payer, sure. are they in charge of your care actually? And they're going to make the decisions. And that's I think something that we all kind of struggle with a bit. What would you say? Well, there's just, there's just a matrix with, with different points on different continua. So, right, so there's a, there's a, is this a service that we're providing? Are we just service providers? People select the services and we provide them. Uh, or are we consultants telling mm -hmm. them which services they really need? And that, that involves a certain amount of 
paternalism for sure. Um, but uh, if the paternalism is benevolent, you know, if it's driven uh, uh, by uh, an informed knowledge of what right. the needs are, uh, you know, certainly from from a from a perspective of understanding the human body, maybe not from a perspective of understanding all things about the patient's situation. But if it's driven by benevolence and 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 informed uh, informed person making it. It, it seems like you can trust that kind of an authority right. to help make you, you make the decisions. That seems to me what a consultative uh, interaction would be like. And, uh, but, but there seem to be various forces that make it a sort of a pick and choose your services and do this yes. technique and then on to the next thing. I like the first philosophy better. <laughs> we'll be back to that. Here in the heart of the nation, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nebraska, and our neighboring states, we understand the impact that physical distance has on our ability to deliver care. Often it is the human relationships that help reduce this challenge. It was after his third open heart surgery. We came home and we were home for about a month. Just one afternoon, Brady started crying and grabbing at his chest. I laid him down on our bed to check his heart rate and his heart rate was low down into the 30s. So I called my husband, which was on his way home from work, and we agreed to call 911 right away. My husband scooped up Brady from the bed and headed out the door, and by the time we got him out to our vehicle, he was completely limp. Our community is pretty small, so you get to know people intermingly at certain events. The name Brady Thompson alerts everybody, and so when we saw that, we knew it was urgent. So we rushed as much as we could. Mac drove as fast as he safely could while I gave him rescue breaths. And we met the ambulance at the highway. And that's where Crystal and Jenny from Buffalo Regional jumped out and took over and took Brady from me and calmed me down. Met them at the highway. I, I jumped out and, and grabbed him from mom. Uh, he was slumped in mom's arms, not responding well. Put him in the ambulance on the cot, got some oxygen on him right away, and he started to come around pretty pretty good after we started the oxygen. We're an hour and a half from Spearfish Regional, so we were concerned about the distance. Knowing how much they care about Brady and they're willing to learn about his complex medical condition and know everything about him for whatever changes may come because, because we're not out of the woods. There'll be future issues that will more than likely pop up. That's why we feel comfortable still living out here in this remote area that we do in Harding County because we know that they're here. They've proven to us that they'll be here for, for Brady, whatever happens. He's doing really well. Um, yeah, he's really active. He's always such a sweetheart when he comes in. You know, we love to hear his sweet little voice. But yeah, I think he's active. He plays with his sisters and he has as bright a future as anybody.
Wow, that's a really powerful story. I can definitely relate to the distance from medical care. So I grew up 30 miles outside of Edgemont between you know Harrison, Nebraska and Edgemont, South Dakota. So I can, I can definitely see the concern in the parents' face in the distance. Um, I know you both know about distances, probably Dr. Graber even a little bit more than Dr. O'Day. How do you think that impacts you know, healthcare and, uh, and what you do or what you say or the human qualities and interactions? Well, one of the things that struck me was the fact that the, the primary care providers had to take on roles that maybe they weren't right. completely trained for. And we've sort of talked about that a lot in that, in that when you're responding to somebody's presentation, their, their need, then you have to do the best you have with, with the resources that are available. And uh, sometimes it takes extra effort, of course, to do that. Sometimes you have enough training to be able to do it. But that's, again, coming down to, to acknowledging, here's a person with a need in this particular setting, therefore we'll do what we can. And, and I guess uh, that I, it, you could use service as a term for that. I mean, my orientation is service, my motivation is service, or my motivation is benevolence. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, I think either of those are, are good terms to describe it. And, and I guess the motivation to put yourself in that situation has to just come from sensing that there's going to be people there with needs and, yep. and they need some, some sort of helper. There is a certain degree of um, resilience that you have to have to be in a rural community because um, you're not going to be the expert in everything. Uh, but I think there's a lot of value in knowing a patient wholly. Uh, when we would do the walk-in clinic, you know, people would talk about how many people would come in and how uh, fast we were able to service mm -hmm. them. But one of the reasons we could do that, I specifically remember a day that the uh, computers went down and I uh, was gloating to the nurses that I bet I can walk in every room and remember every patient and actually do it without the chart. And at the time, I could because I was fully present before the EMR to, to remember what I had told those patients and how well I knew them. And I think one thing that you guys um, have in common, even though your practice is completely different, is isn't it so nice to like kind of know the whole person for a very long period of time? I mean, I know your practice now is in its Three thir third year. Years, yeah. yeah, but you've been in the area for a long time, and you have been in... Kester Hill so, City area for 30, 31 years. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I've been there 22 years. So don't you feel like there's this added benefit when somebody walks in to just be able to have a gestalt of, oh, really sick, never comes in, you know, like, what are we doing here? Right. And you know from the look on their face, even mm -hmm. when you ask them, how are you doing, and they say, okay, you're like, yeah, I don't think so. Yes. You know, that's, that's what happens when you get to see people on a repeat basis. One thing I've appreciated about your practice is, of course, it's a, it's a private pay situation, so there's no insurances involved. So one of the things that I've enjoyed working with you is that, obviously, uh, if it didn't work, people wouldn't just shell out money to go to that no. service, you know? And so one of the things that people have reflected with me is that they appreciate that you know them and you try to help them fully and come to an understanding of, like, who are they? Where are they from? What makes them vulnerable? What makes them tick? What are they scared of? And then treat them wholly. You have to. I mean, you can treat someone with hip pain or back pain or stress or anxiety all you want, but if you don't know what the underlying condition, which may not be a medical problem, is actually causing that to continue, yep. then it doesn't matter. Yep. I mean. There's the flip side to familiarity, which, uh, you know, is that you can assume too much sometimes. And uh, uh, sometimes you can say, oh, I know 
this person always has such and such a complaint or a concern and, and fail to look deeply. So it's a, it's a real effort to be on your guard against that. I like that you brought that up because that's absolutely the truth too. You know, I remember specifically a patient that uh, was in all the time, uh, had lots of complaints. A lot of times, of course, that goes back to childhood trauma, um, lots of, of terrible things that had happened in that person's life. Uh, but that night, you know, I was tired and I was irritable and it would be easy to overlook something and that was the night she had a heart attack, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, there is a good part to the automaticity of like the emergency room workup, you know. Right. Chest pain gets this yep. workup. Right. You know, trauma gets this workup. Uh, particularly in traumas when you're scared. Sure. Uh, yeah. You're hoping you don't, you know, you, that you can save this life. You're still going where, through the, you know, ABCs. I also like that Dr. Freeman brought up, um, you know, that, that we should honor people because I think that people's backgrounds are different. You know, where they came from is different. How they were raised is different. Where they're returning to is different. And if we don't acknowledge that in that human interaction, uh, we can't really guide them in the best way. Um, what are your thoughts about thinking that? About, thinking about things that, that take place over time, thinking about knowing somebody over time and thinking about having like say some real positive experiences with people yeah. and, that, and that builds. I guess it's been really touching to me that there have been times when the experience maybe has not been positive. Maybe I, maybe I haven't provided as good a service or uh, haven't, haven't provided what the person needed in that situation. When people continue to come back to me. And give and, you a second chance right, to. Show me a lot of mercy, mm -hmm. really. Uh, that, that really, um, that's part of what leads me to feel like I can honor them, mm -hmm. right? Because because uh, um, I'm realizing how much they've trusted exactly in me. Yeah. When things are going well, oh, this is obvious, uh, no big deal. But when somebody's somebody's willing to give me another chance or or understand that that uh, with more time I could do better for them, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe that's another way of looking at it. I I just think that's that's been a real motivator to take take people as as individuals and as whole complex persons, not just as, yeah. yeah uh, and, and over a time and space, right? I mean, one of the things I've appreciated that I learned from you is like caring for people at the end of their life. Mm. Uh, the end of life is really a complex time, right? It's like, it's, it's uh, you're scared and what you really wanna do is reach for any hope. Um, a lot of people in this area are okay uh, going to the Lord or going wherever they they believe they're going to go if they don't uh, live a disabled life or a or an extended life in a nursing home, but those conversations um, are are sometimes real conversations, but a lot of times they're relationships mm -hmm. that they grow to trust you. So when cancer comes for them or death comes for them through a stroke or heart attack, we have the ability to say, you know, Bob, this is really bad, and they they know what that means because every other time. You haven't said that. You have said like, oh, we have this to do and we have, we're going to do this and I, I think this is in your best effort. And um, I really enjoy having that relationship with people to try to help them navigate mm -hmm. uh, the dying process too. Right. So to have, to have the depth of, of having a whole variety of experiences with people, I think makes that more realistic. Yeah, I love how you really point out that these uh, relationships between patients and doctors we hope to enrich their lives. We hope to add things to their life. But I have learned so much from my patients. I mean, I, I have learned, and, and the essay at the end of this talks about it, like humility. You know, I've been wrong, or I've been misguided, or I've been short, and people have 
you know, sometimes told me, sometimes right. written a letter, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I've learned from that. I've grown as a person, you know, when we come out, we're young. I look back at the oh, pictures yeah. and we're just young people. We haven't had the experience to know um, and we're entrusted with these lives of human beings. And sometimes you think, it's like when they send a newborn baby home with you and you're like, what are you doing? I, you know, <laughs> right. I don't know how to take care of this child. And you think to yourself, I know I have all the needed things from medical school, but how to put all that into practice, you know, requires time. Sure. Yeah. Right. So the technical information is, is, is great to be able to apply, but uh, you need the experience of multiple points of contact really to develop the relationship. Um, frustrating that that uh, the economics of medicine sometimes keep that from happening. You mm -hmm. know, I, I come once a year because that's that one visit gets covered. Right. Uh, we don't really develop a relationship very well in once a year. Um, on the other hand, that that can, you know, it's an entry point, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, okay. This is what this is what's available to us right now. Let's let's make the most of that. So the the distance issue, I think, is a lot of times. Um, it requires us to be comprehensivists. I think you made up that term, mm. and I like that term. Uh, but it's like you, you have a choice. You can push Bob so far, and he's going to go to one appointment or maybe two, mm -hmm. you know. But if you line him out with a neurologist for his Parkinson's and a cardiologist for his AFib and your appointments, and he has prostate cancer and he needs to see the urologist, he's not going to do it. It's going to fall through the cracks. Financially, he's not able to do it. So you really do need to be a comprehensivist and handle the things you can as best you can. Well, and hold some things in tension. Uh, I talked to a guy just today who previously had not been interested in one class of medicines for his diabetes, but was now willing to talk about it after another year had passed, mm -hmm. time had passed, and he'd seen what he could do with the first set of medications and what his lifestyle really led him to. So I, I, I feel like, okay, I'm learning to, to not dump everything on you at once. Lay the groundwork, right? right? Lay but, the groundwork. But, you know, always know that we're going to be able to talk about more options later. Yep. And, uh, and that does play out over time. Uh, again, you can, who, who, who am I serving? Am I serving right. a list of things that says you must do this for everybody with this condition? Or am I serving this particular patient at this point in time who is willing to take one step toward treating his condition? We just have about a minute left, yeah. but I think about you a lot in this setting because a lot of people's pain and things go back to trauma. They go back to things that are stuck within them and you have to lay the groundwork for that trust. Right? So yeah. if they ask me, how many sessions is it going to take with Dr. O'Day? I say, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know? But like if you're doing, expecting to get it all in one session, it's unpacking your life history. Right. Right? Yeah. And sometimes it takes a lot of time for them to acknowledge that themselves. Yes. Yeah. I have a recent uh, retired surgeon who said a year ago, if you would have told me that what I ate had anything to do with my hip pain, I would have told you you were crazy. And he's like, now I'm telling you that I know that it is true, but it takes time sometimes. And that is the joy of practicing in an area where you see people over time. Um, I can't imagine just doing ER medicine, just doing ER medicine, or just doing urgent care medicine where I really didn't see the results or the fruits of my labor because I enjoy that so much of being like, ah, like the light bulb went off or that person like bought into what I was saying or, um, or I was wrong about what I was saying and they were right about their, their path on that. So I enjoy all of that uh, because I learned from it and they, uh, they reap the benefits also of me <laughs> learning for it. The next patient I'm smarter for, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's good. Neurologist uh, Dr. Jerome Freeman, chair of the University of South Dakota's Department of Neurosciences,
believes in the importance of integrating kindness into the field of medicine. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael asked him to relate those beliefs. Well, for the last 10 years or so, I've been writing about kindness. The power of kindness motivates individuals to feel happier, comfortable, and empowered. Displaying a happier environment in the medical field can lower the patient's stress levels and increase the body's production of good hormones, dopamine, and serotonin. I think it's a, a choice all of us can make. And in the medical school, we define kindness as action. So it's important for us, to, anybody, to have empathy and uh, to care about people, but those are personal attributes. Kindness is what we do. And we define kindness very specifically as both what we do and how we do it. So it, kindness isn't just being nice or being friendly. It means knowing the right treatment, knowing the risks and benefits, recognizing ethical problems if they're there. That's the what. And then the how we do it is to honor people, be aware of their needs, and to treat them nicely, basically. With the act of kindness, it provokes a fulfilling environment for both patients and workers. It's a practice that we can all distribute to one another as it improves health care all around. Because I tell medical students that if they want to succeed, if they want to really be the type of doctor that people want to go to, that other physicians would want to go to, kindness is really, really important. People talk about kindness. They brag about it if their clinicians are kind. Nurses, many, many nurses really have the instinct about being kind. And I know your, your, your mother certainly does. And I think that's a tribute to nursing. And it's, it's a message to all of us. I encourage our staff, our medical students, our physicians to be thinking about kindness, to talk about examples of kindness they see, and then to use kindness. And sometimes we, all of us fall down. Sometimes we get impatient or behind. And it, just because any of us might, might fail in kindness once doesn't mean that's the end of the story. I think what we have to be willing to do is to pick each other up and to say, okay, we're going to be kind over and over and over again. So that's what I advocate. Uh, Dr. O'Day and I were talking about Dr. Freeman because um, we were actually uh, students of his in med school. Yep. He doesn't look like he's changed a lot. He's Not a wonderful all. person. He was talking about kindness when we were in med school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that you both have mentors or situations uh, that, that taught you a little bit about kindness. Um, tell me first about just like a mentor uh, that you really tried to emulate or somebody, and it doesn't even have to be in the medical field. Working kind of uh, in a smaller practice in a smaller community, there weren't really a lot of other doctors around when I started. Right. And so I would say most of the most of the examples come from other kinds of people and, and watching people solve problems in other kind of situations, watching how they related to groups of people um, was, was probably the most instructive thing to me, uh, realizing that you can wield your authority in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can be pretty heavy-handed or you can be cooperative with people. Um, and I think I saw some things like that in, in Don Gifford, who was the administrator who hired yeah. me. 
He seemed like a really wonderful person. Yeah. How about you, Dr. O'Day? Actually, I would say uh, clinically, probably how I would try to emulate the most would probably be Tom Huber. Oh, yeah. Um, I did both of my rural rotations with Tom and Pierre because I'm from Pierre. Yep. And it was interesting because I did my med school mostly in Sioux Falls. And then you would go out into the community and you'd see the difference in the way that medicine was practiced and yep. where for me, it might have seemed a little bit more stuffy uh, and formal in Sioux Falls, but then you go, I would go to Pierre and I would see Tom interact with some of them being my teachers from high school. And um, he always was, he always acted with a lot of fun in mm -hmm. the office, um, but he was also very direct if something was serious and people would listen to him and they felt comfortable with him and they would tell them things that they probably wouldn't tell anybody else. And I think that that's probably... And he probably built that trust over years and years, right? I mean, oh, definitely. Uh, and in small town, uh, obviously, you know, there's indiscretions that are occurring or there's people who are in very vulnerable situations and it takes a very um, minimal uh, amount of effort to ruin your reputation and right. you know uh, and and blow up that uh, interaction that you would have with people so I think he's a great example of a great physician yep. Streeter Shining uh, was in Rapid City and he was one of my favorite doctors ever um, and he just he was like so great with patients when he came into their room and it he was never like you know he was very smart but he wasn't like stiff and you know, regimented. He, he let the conversation right. flow, let the patient be, um, and I think that's important too. I felt like with Dr. Huber or with Tom is the way that he was in the clinic was the way he was in public. He was very it authentic. It was like, you know, it was almost like you were sitting down to have a coffee with him at the yeah. coffee shop. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I've definitely created my practice now is I want people to feel completely comfortable mm -hmm. in that environment and talk to me like a normal person and yeah, um, I, I, I can definitely appreciate that. I think that's very true. I'm thinking about the situation of, of growing up in the same town and, and so <laughs> seeing people as patients who were previously over you or you know, an authority in your life and now you're transitioning to becoming an authority in, in a person like that's life. We just had this conversation because my art teacher from high school is still a very good friend. Um, they're in their 70s and 80s and I go see them every weekend when they come out here for the summer. And I'll never forget the first summer I came back to do my rotation and I saw her name on the list for uh, to, to be seen. Right, and yeah. I was like, I think I'll skip this yeah, one. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, I actually always joke about um, being from the Edgemont Pringle area that the only place in the world I know that credibility is given through drinking Bud Light at a rodeo or hog wrestling is in that area. But, but what that means is not, you know, that action. It means I'm relatable. Right. You know, they can relate to me. They trust me because I'm one of them, you know, and I know where they're from, you know. And so I think that that is really important, you know. And that's nationally we know that's important as well. If I was dropped into the middle of Detroit, uh, I, I wouldn't have that credibility. And I probably wouldn't understand a lot about uh, that culture. So it, it is helpful. And it's helpful to have a curiosity, right? If we meet any situation with a curiosity, rather than a bias, it's going to be helpful. Yeah. So people are, um, are exercising their, their own autonomy uh, in terms of seeking services, and they want to be involved more and more in yeah. decision-making about those services. And yet at the same time, they don't bring the same fund of information to it that we do, although they obviously bring their own personal experiences. 
So the challenge of respecting their autonomy <laughs> while still being kind and benevolent and yet being true to a school of factual information uh, is it, it, it's kind of a difficult balancing act. It's a, definitely a balancing act, isn't it? And it almost feels like the more autonomy people want to exercise, the less I'm able um, to, to deliver, I guess, yeah. the, the kind of product I'd like to. The more it becomes just, a, well, I'm selecting you for this service alone. That's a really interesting. I think that um, I started to feel like sometimes during office visits, I had an agenda um, because the, the, the patient's name is there with mm -hmm. what they're there for. But when the patient came in the room, I realized that wasn't what they were there for. Right. But my mind was already made up that like it was a 15 minute visit or a 30 minute visit because it, it had well, this list on it. And it's gotta meet the criteria to get the right NM codes. Right. You gotta do certain things. Right, right. And mm -hmm. so in my own practice, um, I wasn't really given any guidance by my organization. But what I found was I can't have a schedule that's booked up for three months because I don't have any bandwidth to fit in things that need that. So when I started holding entire days for my own booking purposes, I found that it was so uh, joyful and so wonderful because I could see somebody and and even though it wasn't the way I thought it was gonna go, mm -hmm. I just completely turned it over to what they needed in that moment. And then at the end of the visit, I was able to say, um, you know, I. I listened and, and, and heard you say this, this, and this, but there were some things today that we didn't really get to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so I have an appointment for you in two weeks because I had kept the day open. I get to do that every day. Right, I know, I know, <laughs> I'm, jealous. I'm jealous of that, yes. That's fantastic. And I do yeah. think that it's, it, it's something we're not taught in med school, like um, how Very, do you manage your time? How do you manage yeah. you know, patients? In the training that I did with the Helms Institute for Acupuncture, one of their things was, whatever they book their appointment for, don't focus on that. Make sure when you're, when you're talking to them, say, now I know this is what you booked your appointment for today, but if you were to walk out of here with one thing being better today, what would it be? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, I would say 50% of the times, it's not what they yeah. initially made the appointment for. And when you don't work within the confines of corporate medicine and ticking boxes, you are able to move into that, mm -hmm. which is, a pretty nice way to practice. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think that um, I think that's wonderful because I think it's so important. We talk a lot about you know kindness being taught to physicians and uh, kindness being uh, brought by to us by patients. You know, patients and our interactions should be kind. But I think also of the culture that organizations bring. Um, you know, is it a kind culture? Is it a kind? Um, is, is it set up in a way uh, that we are nurtured as employees? Now, maybe some people think that that's not uh, an organization's job, but I would actually counter that if an organization or a business doesn't set up a culture that's kind to their employees, their employees are not in a mindset that they can be kind to their patients. The thing I say to my patients all the time, and it would apply to you as well and to anybody, is you can't fill someone else's cup from your empty cup. And if your cup isn't being filled by whoever is employing you or creating the environment that you work in, how are you supposed to give anything to the people that, are, that you're supposed to be serving? And I think that needs to be thought of more when we start dealing with corporate medicine. Well, right, and we, we have the benefits of, of uh, 
more training, more security in and of ourselves. Right. Uh, staff people who work with us don't actually have those kinds of benefits, so they're put into a position of relating to patients and being expected to accomplish certain tasks, and they're just coming from it from a different position. Uh, and, and so it does take a great deal of training and a great deal of creating an environment for them to be able to, to perform well. Yeah, I definitely have heard um, early in our career, it seemed like work-life balance was a, a tagline that you heard all the time. But, you know, it really seems to me like work-life integration, like this is your life. There shouldn't be like work and home and fun. Mm -hmm. You really need to figure out in a life how to list, live each moment, each day, come to each relationship and be happy and um, be giving and open because those moments are ticking by through the day. So there's a, there's a real challenge here that, that third-party payment has allowed us to get pretty good compensation for the interactions we have with people and feel the real obligation to not only the patient to provide value, but also to the payer to provide value. Right. And so, again, I'm, I'm trying to serve two different parties. Yeah. And, um, and you know, realistically, my expectations of what my life is going to be like in terms of income color a lot how I try to use my time mm -hmm. and and that's just a whole area of discipline for me is how am I gonna how am I gonna manage that yeah right I, I would agree oh, yeah. <laughs> your practice is a little different in some ways because you can you can uh, you don't have a third-party payer so no, there's no third-party payer I but I'm also the receptionist yeah the uh, person who cleans the bathroom the person sure. that uh, straightens up the room that you know all of those things but removing all of that allows me to spend the time with the patient as much time as I want and as much time as I need. And that is the most value that they can get for coming and seeing me. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We'll be back after this. What does it mean to practice humanity in medicine? The phrase is used as a tagline and in book titles. Humanity and compassion in medicine is touted as something to aspire to, a noble accomplishment. But in reality, the biomedical model of health, the business model for healthcare, is not set up to support it. Algorithms and best practices set forth by insurance companies and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid do not account for the time required to establish meaningful human interaction between patient and caregiver. This conundrum can be frustrating. Understanding the nuances of each individual patient and each situation cannot be rushed, yet opting to practice slow medicine can have negative ramifications, constantly running behind, having more work than you can handle, and knowing that there are more critical and needy patients waiting to be seen. Thankfully, the benefits far outweigh the frustrations. Medical professionals who choose to share in the human condition with patients are better able to care for the whole person in a way that is nurturing and fulfilling to both parties. When we are successful in this effort to see our own fear and our own death 
and our own vulnerability in our patients, we will meet them and treat them with an open mind and an open heart. We will listen actively without bias or judgment, and we will do what is best for them in this moment in their life. Regardless of our profession, experiencing a sense of powerlessness can creep into us and lead to isolation and avoidance. We can lose connectedness with our own emotions and our own self, striving to have an open awareness and acceptance of grief, pain, and knowing when to accept our inability to change circumstances can help us avoid feelings of helplessness. Being a doctor helped create who I am as a person. I am grateful for all the patients who have enriched my life and taught me lessons of humility, joy, interconnectedness, and impermanence. My patients and my experiences have indeed opened my mind and my heart. In my exam rooms, my patients and I collaborate in a communion of sorts. We share and connect as we learn about each other and better understand each other. That is what it means to practice humanity in medicine. Perhaps these words by one of my favorite authors, David White, say it best. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. Pay attention to everything in the world as if it is alive. Realize everything has its own discrete existence outside your story. By doing this, you open to the gifts and lessons the world has to give you. Thank you to our guests, Wyatt and Terry, my friends, my coworkers. Uh, I appreciate you volunteering your time and uh, helping us learn more about humanity and medicine. As we continue to celebrate our 20th season, we invite you, our viewers, to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life. Please email or mail your story to the addresses on the screen. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please, like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper, and be sure to look for this podcast under Prairie Doc On Call wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for inviting us into your home as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. So, Mom, isn't this the year, the 20th anniversary season of the Prairie Doc? That's right. That's amazing. I, I remember when you and Dad started this idea of producing science-based medical information free for the public. That's right, and thanks to years of donations from businesses, organizations, and individuals, Prairie Doc programs are available on South Dakota Public TV, mm -hmm. Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, and our essays are printed in over 150 newspapers across many states it's and amazing. region. 150 newspapers. 150. You know, I'm grateful to serve with you on the Healing Words Foundation board and try to work to build new generations of, of listeners and followers. 
Many volunteers give their heart and soul to this Prairie Dock mission so that we can continue Dad's legacy of truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20, 20 seasons. <laughs> now, to help continue this important work, please follow the Prairie Dock and share our programs on all of your social media pages. To make a financial gift, please give directly to prairiedock.org or mail to P.O. Box 752 Brookings, South Dakota. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Peer District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Saline Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swiftel Communications.